Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Welcome, everyone, to The Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you're here. This podcast is for anyone who's on the spiritual path, and that means we're committed to raising consciousness, awakening to our authentic self, shedding inherited cultural conditioning, healing the soul, and realizing our divine nature. So this is a podcast about practical spiritual living, and it's a message of hope, inspiration, and awakening in the world. So today's podcast is about questioning a paradigm that all of us have been living with. And I think questioning paradigms is part of the spiritual path. And so if you have been questioning the medical paradigm that we live in, this is the perfect podcast for you. If you haven't been, I just invite you to have an open mind and listen to what my guest has to say today. And maybe you can take a fresh look at some of your, some of the assumptions that you've been living under. So really this is about who we are as, as consciousness, as spiritual beings, And does the medical paradigm really fit with the reality of our spiritual nature? Let me introduce my guest, Mark Gober. He's a return guest to this podcast. He's been with me on episode 178 and 199. He's a very prolific writer. He's published six books in five and a half years, and they're all paradigm-shifting books about consciousness, science, government, extraterrestrial contact, and now medicine. I'm going to be linking all of his books in the show notes and also having a more extended bio on Mark in the show notes. In a nutshell, he serves on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which was founded by Apollo astronaut Edgar Mitchell, and his latest book is An End to Upside-Down Medicine. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for having me, Rev. Carroll. It is great to talk with you. We love getting into these topics that that deal with the the paradigms of the world and also spirituality and consciousness. And those two things don't intersect all the time, but that's that's the work that you basically play in in your writing. That's what it's turned into. I started off with shifting my paradigm around the basic nature of reality and the nature of consciousness. And I've carried that through into other topics because it flows into everything. That's what I'm finding. I think that's just so interesting. Before we get into how you started writing this book, can you just review a little bit about materialism versus consciousness and that whole that whole shift in how we look at things? Yes. So I used to be a materialist myself, even though I wouldn't have used that term because I didn't know what it meant. But it basically means that everything in the universe is fundamentally made of matter and things emerge from matter, including our consciousness. So if we take things back to the beginning of the universe under the materialist perspective, there was an event that started the universe, the Big Bang, and then the universe was filled with bits of matter, atoms, and those atoms started colliding with each other and interacting. We call that chemistry. And there were lots of chemical reactions in a huge universe. And eventually, a self-replicating molecule emerged like DNA, and that led to the evolution of biological species like human beings. And humans have brains, and from the brain pops out our consciousness. In other words, our capacity for experience. 
the subjective inner awareness that we all have at this very moment. So materialism is saying that that thing that we have right now, that consciousness that even allows us to ask questions about life, that comes from matter. Whereas the alternative that I've been uh, discussing in my books is that consciousness comes at the very beginning of the picture. That consciousness is more fundamental than matter. And actually what we would call matter and something that's physical is actually just an interpretation of our consciousness. So it is a huge flip because it also views the body in a different light. And this is very relevant to the topic of medicine because under materialism, the body is just a biological robot that's moving around in a universe that doesn't have any fundamental meaning to it beyond what we make up in our own minds. Whereas the reverse is that the body is like a vessel or a vehicle through which consciousness is having an experience. So that makes our brain and our body almost like antenna receivers or processors or filtering mechanisms for a much broader consciousness. And one more analogy that I often like to use, and I don't know if this is precise, but it helps me just conceptualize this abstract idea, which is that all reality is like a stream of consciousness. And each of us is a whirlpool within that stream. This comes from a philosopher, Dr. Bernardo Castro. So we are whirlpools within a stream so the there's an individuated consciousness within a collective and they both coexist together that's very different than the materialist view that consciousness pops out of your brain when you die that's the end of all experience and there's no life after death or anything like that the body's not a vehicle and actually that's the mainstream medical paradigm even though they might not say it that way it's implicit in the way they look at the body and the way they look at health yeah i see that now before we get into health this consciousness materialism thing, I mean, we're, we live in two worlds because I think people who are spiritually minded would really understand the consciousness model. That makes a lot of sense. But we're always kind of pulled into this material thinking because that's the prevalent paradigm, I think, that, that most of our society lives in. So can you also just share briefly what supports the consciousness model versus the materialism model? There are four categories that have persuaded me away from materialism and toward this consciousness-centric metaphysics. One is anomalies of consciousness, and I'll just give a few examples in a, in a second. Second is philosophy, meaning <clears throat> from a philosophical perspective, it's actually more um, parsimonious to start with consciousness, meaning you don't need as many assumptions. And mm -hmm. from a philosophical standpoint, that's a good thing. The third is quantum mechanics. So actual physics points us away from materialism. And the fourth is direct experiences where people actually have experiences of this. And can, should I go through these quickly? Yeah. Would yeah, that be helpful? Good. Okay. So in terms of the anomalies, the first category, and the, my first book and End Upside Down Thinking and my podcast series, Where Is My Mind, spends a lot of time going through the details of this. But there are two basic categories within the anomalies category. One is psychic phenomena, and the other is survival of bodily death, meaning consciousness continues when the body dies. And on the side of psychic phenomena, there are many, many studies that have been done at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Princeton University used to have a lab for nearly 30 years. Uh, Duke University had a lab in the earlier 1900s, um, running studies on telepathic communications, mind-matter interactions. Uh, remote viewing, which is the ability to perceive something far away with the mind alone. And this was done by the U.S. government for over two decades, starting in the 1970s and their declassified documents. So there's a whole category of psychic phenomena, which blew my mind. I didn't know there was evidence for that beyond science fiction. And then the other category of surviving bodily death, 
this is things like near-death experiences where a person has uh, a, a clear consciousness even when their brain is off or has barely any functioning at all, or children who have memories of a previous life. This is work done at the University of Virginia, over 2,500 cases of young kids. And sometimes they have um, birthmarks and physical deformities that actually line up with how they claim to have died in the previous mm -hmm. life. And the researchers are sometimes able to find historical and medical records that line up. So there's this huge category of anomalies. And my argument has always been, if one of them is real, just even one study, then we've got a big problem in materialism. And it's not just one study, it's many studies in many categories. So that's the first one. Second category, philosophy. This is much more abstract, but I'll try to summarize it. And if you're interested in learning more, I recommend Dr. Bernardo Castro's book, The Idea of the World. It's his peer-reviewed philosophy papers combined into one book. But the idea is that it requires, in order to experience anything, there needs to be a consciousness to experience it. That sounds like a very basic thing to say. But if you put that in the context of the materialist view of reality, materialism says that there was a universe of all this material stuff and there was no consciousness. Consciousness came later. That's possible, but it is, by definition, not something that can be verified directly. Because in order to verify something directly, you need a consciousness to experience it. So if there was no consciousness then, all we can do is make indirect in inferences. And so from a philosophical perspective, if, if we want to accept materialism, there are all kinds of assumptions we have to make. Whereas if we just say it's all consciousness, we don't have to make those same assumptions. So it's the principle is Occam's razor. The simplest solution is usually the best. And so that is an interesting category because you don't even have to invoke any paranormal ideas with it. It's just philosophical. The third, uh, quantum mechanics. So th these are things like uh, quantum entanglement, where two particles that are far away in space and time, when you affect one, the other one moves at the same exact instant. That's just a, a brief summary. So it implies that there's a hidden interconnectedness to things. And there are also studies, the double slit laser experiment is the key one, where the person's consciousness in the experiment affects the outcome as a very general overview. And some people have said, well, that shows consciousness is, is involved here. And the fourth is direct experiences where people in their own minds experience the oneness of consciousness. They experience something beyond the body. And this could be through psychedelics. It could be through meditation, near-death experience states, other forms of mystical experiences. There's a, a very common thread that you hear. Even though they don't have the exact same experience, they talk about we're all interconnected. It's all unconditional love. There is something beyond the body. And I've had many people who have had those experiences say, especially about my first book, thank you for writing this because you're providing scientific evidence to make me not sound crazy. So now I can tell people that I actually did have this experience and there's evidence for it. Thank you. Thanks for that, that summary. And, and the, the title of your book is An End to Upside Down Medicine and Why Consciousness is Needed for a New Paradigm of Health. So we, we still have a, a big foot stuck in the material consciousness. And yet there's all this evidence for this other consciousness paradigm. And so your book is really about looking at how we can bring consciousness into medicine and how it is sorely lacking. And I think anybody who goes to the doctor, we're so used to the doctor looking at your body kind of like it is a machine or a car or something. What is wrong with it? And then what can I apply to it chemically to just fix it? Whereas if we were looking at the entire being of a person, a doctor might, and maybe this will happen in 25 years or so, a doctor might be asking you more about what's going on in your life. Who are you? And what, what else could be impacting you? But 
our medical paradigm right now, our medical system is really all about, I think it seems like it's a lot like we are broken cars that need to be fixed. <laughs> and it's because we're stuck in this materialism paradigm. Would you agree with that? I would very much so. And one of the quotes I mentioned in my book in End Upside Down Medicine is that modern medicine wants to look exclusively what's under the microscope rather than what's in within the macroscope of the person's whole being. And that really summarizes how it is. If you go to see a doctor, they want to run all these tests and they're not actually asking what's going on in your life because they do see the body as something much more mechanistic. And it's a reductionistic perspective that there's this one little cause that we can point to. And if you take this one pill, then you're going to be better. Whereas health to me, in my view, is much more multifactorial and it relates to these other more etheric and abstract concepts. And if we go to this consciousness-centric picture of reality rather than materialism, the implication is that our consciousness would affect reality. So let me give it just a tangible example of that. Studies that have been done at Princeton and elsewhere on random number generator machines. These are just machines and they generate ones and zeros all day long in a random fashion. And if you look at the string of ones and zeros over time, you get close to 50% ones and 50% zeros because it's a random machine. In the experiments, people are asked, these are everyday people, they'll say, hey, Rev Carroll, I want you to put your mind to this machine and use your intention to make it produce more ones than zeros. And these are not people claiming to have special psychic abilities often. And lo and behold, the people are able to do that, meaning the machines have a deviation from the 50-50 uh, split that we typically see beyond what chance would predict. It's a small effect, but it's highly statistically significant. This is one out of many studies on psychokinesis, mind-matter interaction, which would make sense if consciousness is the basis of reality. If we shift consciousness, then reality is going to shift in some way. Maybe it doesn't mean that we think about an elephant and an elephant appears in front of us every time that we think of one, but it might be more in a more subtle way or in ways that are nonlinear. And that's what seems to be occurring. So if that's true, then, and if our body is apparently physical, then what's going on with the relationship between our mindset and our bodily health? So that means looking at things like what's going on in your life? What are your emotions? What are your beliefs and your thoughts? That's not really what we hear from doctors these days. And yet there are incredible examples of miracle healings. So one that I mentioned in my book is Anita Morjani. She had terminal cancer and ended up in a near-death state where she was in, she felt unconditional love. She met her deceased father and she had a shift in her consciousness. She realized that she had been too hard on herself in her life and was too judgmental. And when she came back, she was resuscitated. Her cancer just disappeared and the doctors couldn't believe it. They said, where's your cancer? So she had a consciousness shift and there, then there was a physical shift. It literally saved her life. That's one example out of many. And under the mainstream allopathic reductionistic model, that sort of thing should never happen. Yeah. And I suppose they look at that as that shouldn't have happened and it couldn't have happened or it's some strange thing that happened. And then let's ignore that and go on to what we, we believe. We, we know that our mind can affect the body. I mean, we know that our attitude really impacts our ability to heal ourselves. If we have a really negative attitude, it takes longer. I think I shared with you once before that the co-founder of Unity, which is one of my ordinations, Myrtle Fillmore, all of Unity was really founded on spiritual healing. Because this woman, when she was a young woman, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis which is the late 1800s. At this time, it was a death sentence. She was given six months to live. Now, she could have believed that 
and then died six months later. Because a lot of times we just believe what the doctor says. And then we end up carrying out basically their orders, die in six months. But she went to this, she went to this seminar and she heard the person who was leading it, I think his name is Quimby, he said the statement that I am a child of God and therefore I do not inherit sickness, or you are a child of God, you do not inherit sickness. And she took this deep into her heart. It, I mean, it was like, you know how sometimes you hear something and it's like, that's truth. <laughs> Other times you go, what is that? She saw that as mm. truth. And so she took that into her heart, her mind, and she sat in prayer with that thought. I am a child of God and therefore I do not inherit sickness. These were not just words to her. These were, this is truth to her. And over a long period of time, she, what she did is she not just, didn't just pray, but she sat in, a, in a, a rocking chair and she had another rocking chair next to her where she invited the spirit of Jesus to be there, which mattered to her. But she also went into her body, her consciousness into her body. She forgave her, she asked for forgiveness. So she asked for forgiveness of herself. You know, I'm sorry that I abuse you. I'm sorry I hurt you. You know, please forgive me. And she loved all these aspects of her body and she was healed. And so we know that this can happen. We've seen this kind of ha healing from prayer. We've seen spontaneous healing. So there's something about our mind, our hearts. There's something about prayer also that can support healing. We know these things. And I, I think a lot of doctors would say, oh yeah, go ahead and pray. That's all good. <laughs> but it's not like the, the initial mm -hmm. prescription. So it's really, really missing in our medical field. Why else should we be questioning the medical paradigm? Because in your book, especially the first half, you lay out some principles that are out there that we assume are true. But then when you look a little bit deeper, you realize that there's, they're kind of standing on a house of cards. There's a lot of things that we have just swallowed as cultural conditioning when it comes to medicine or the medical paradigm that really aren't standing on a lot of substanti some substantiated studies. Do you want to share some of those? Sure. Yeah, like you say, the book is divided into two sections. The first is more, let's say, traditional medical assumptions within the allopathic model. And the second is in introducing consciousness, which to me wipes the other stuff out <laughs> completely, or at least it's a, it's a more fundamental aspect of it. So now we're moving to the more traditional medical assumptions. And, and some of I was aware of the consciousness aspects before um, this year, let's say, and, and the assumptions I'm about to talk about now, I hadn't questioned them as much until more recently. So then I realized there was a way to synthesize all of it together. And that's where the book came from. But there is this assumption, I'll give an example, where if people are in the same place at the same time, and a lot of them get sick, we say, well, they caught something. There was a virus and it went from person to person and that's why they all got sick. Why is that a problematic statement? Because there are many reasons that people can get sick. It is certainly one good hypothesis to say that there is a particle that went from person to person that's pathogenic. That's a great hypothesis to start from. But what else could have happened? What if they were all exposed to a similar toxin that was in the room and they didn't realize it? Or what if they all got a similar to toxic exposure from the food that they ate? Or what if there was electromagnetic radiation that they weren't aware of that affected some people? What if there was a similar emotional shock that they underwent? And this is kind of moving more in the direction of consciousness, but still there, there are other factors that can affect people in the same place at the same time. 
one of the examples that I give in the book is scurvy. Mm. Over 2 million sailors died at sea. Gums were bleeding, teeth were falling out, very specific symptoms and horrific stuff. What happened? They had a, a nutritional deficiency, vitamin C. And if they had eaten lemons and limes, their symptoms would not have been there. It was not a contagious virus, even though they were in the same place at the same time. So this is really, like many of the assumptions we'll talk about, it's a matter of critical thinking. And as I started to explore what many others have looked at with regard to what's known as the, the germ theory view of disease, which is that there are these pathogenic particles that go from person to person and make other people sick, that I didn't realize the, the sloppiness of the science behind that belief system. I just sort of assumed it to be true because of these general observations. Look, we were all around each other. A bunch of people got sick, although not everyone gets sick in many cases. And that's a, an anomaly people don't talk about. But you'd say, okay, well, maybe they just had some kind of immunity to it, even though maybe I don't have any evidence for that. And we come up with these stories and explain what happened. Whereas now I'm, I've come more from a place of, I'm not really sure why anyone gets sick. There are so many factors going on and I'm in a much more of a place of not knowing. And that's a scarier position to be in. Yeah, I, I think that's really, it's so fundamental. It's like how we used to think that the, the sun revolved around the earth and we realize it's the other way around. I'm sure at that time, moving into that new paradigm where we're, the earth is going around the sun was just like those kinds of people were probably considered nuts. You know, that's not the way it is. And I think that's where we are with something like this. It's like it hasn't been looked at that closely. We, we assume that it's true because we were raised that way and we assume that those guys are all doing their jobs. But the science is not really the best. And you are not a scientist. I'm not, I mean, neither of us are scientists. I, I have an engineering yeah. background. I have a lot of science in my background. I feel like I can spot pretty spotty science. And I'm just really shocked at some of these things. I think that uh, before I leave this, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about what else could be going on when people get sick around each other. Because we do know things, other things happen. Like, you know, when you're in a business meeting and somebody yawns and then somebody else yawns and and then you yawn, and then suddenly everyone's yawning. Nobody thinks that somebody caught a yawn. Nobody thinks that some yawn particle went from one person to another, and then from another person to another. This is the kind of thing we just kind of assume, for some reason, we all just yawn together. And I think there's something energetic about that. Or, you know, I don't know what that is, but it does happen. I think it also happens if people start scratching themselves, and people start feeling, <laughs> maybe there's something I need to scratch. We do impact mm -hmm. our, each other energetically. I don't think that many people would debate that. I, I agree, but I don't think many people think about it in the way that you, you just phrased it because we're so attached to the germ hypothesis mm -hmm. that we don't even consider other possibilities. Another one is that when women spend a lot of time together, start living together, their menstrual cycles start to yep. synchronize. There's studies on that. Or even women's menstrual cycles synchronizing with the moon. There was a paper I cite in the book on that. So there are energetic things that we don't understand. The term that some people use, and I mentioned in my book, is resonance. That there is an energetic resonance between people. And maybe one person is detoxifying from something that he or she's going through. And energetically, could someone else pick that up? Maybe. Um, I talk about telesomatic events in the book. Dr. Larry Dossi has looked into this where... For example, identical twins, and I think it's in the range of 20 to 30% of identical twins experience this, where one twin might be injured physically and the other twin who was not injured directly will have the same physical symptom. So one twin is burned and then the other twin far away experiences a burn on the skin. So there are 
cases like this where there is something going on on an energetic level, um, and I also cite some of the studies from the HeartMath Institute where there there seems to be resonance in people's physiology. So that, that's not something we think about. It's almost like it's too mystical. And that's the scary part of it is that we do live in a mystical world and these reductionistic answers, which are appealing to the linear mind to say, oh, there's this microscopic thing. It went in your cells then it went to this person and then it got in the cells and did some bad stuff. And that's why you're having the same symptoms. It's very simplistic and it's easy for the mind to comprehend. Whereas when we're talking about etheric abstract ideas of energy that we can't see and it's causing physical symptoms in other people around you, what does that even mean? It's much easier to latch on to the thing that we can grasp. Yeah, but even I, I, I've talked about viruses before, about how they enter the cell and then they go and they replicate and then they destroy the cell. But when you dig into it, that has never been actually even observed, I, I think that electron microscopy has not actually even seen that. And I just assumed my whole life that that model has been observed, that that actual activity of a virus going into a cell, I've used this as a metaphor many times in my ministry even, going into a cell that we've seen that, but we haven't actually seen that. That's shocking. Yeah, this is mind-blowing if your audience is new to this concept. Yeah. <laughs> This is a shocking one that I, I was very resistant to when I learned about it. I just couldn't believe that that would be true. And before I talk about viruses, I want to distinguish this from bacteria, which have been mm -hmm. observed, and they're much larger particles than viruses are believed to be. But viruses, the, the, originally, a virus meant poison. And over time, people were trying to understand why other people were getting sick. And, and there was a belief, well, maybe there's something that we can't see within the fluids of sick people that's going from person to person. So Louis Pasteur in the 1800s, for example, he saw people getting sick with, with what is known as rabies, but he couldn't find a particle that was responsible for it. So he said, look, there must be a virus there. And it wasn't until the 1930s that the electron microscope was invented, and it wasn't even used in widespread um, applications for the, until the decades beyond that, really. But that was the first technology that enabled people to see things that are as small as viruses are believed to be. The problem with that is that when you look at something under an electron microscope, you're looking at dead tissue that's been chopped up. There's resin on it. Electron beams are shot at it. Sometimes the temperatures change dramatically. So you're not seeing anything close to what a natural environment is. And it's a static image. So like you said, Rev. Carroll, a virus is believed to be a genetic material encased in protein that gets inside of a host cell and it replicates and then it goes outside of that host cell and then goes into other cells within that organism and it causes all these symptoms. That is not something that is directly observed is what was very shocking for me to understand. So then the question becomes, okay, you're not seeing it under an electron microscope. They're inferring it because they do see things under the electron microscope. The question is, is it that virus definition that I just gave of how people think about this genetic particle? Is that what they're looking at when they, we see an arrow of a certain virus on, on TV? Is that cellular debris? Is it something else? How do we even know what it is? So taking a few steps back beyond that, I was surprised to learn that the, the method for isolating a virus, meaning separating it from other things, that's the traditional definition of isolation. Like if you, the, the definition or the example that Dr. Tom Cowan uses is that if you have a toolbox, you take the hammer out from the toolbox, you're isolating the hammer. Very simple. Like you'd want to do that for studies on viruses or bacteria. And for bacteria, they do this. 
But if you want to show that a virus does cause disease, you'd want to take the virus by itself and then put it into a, a living system and see if it causes disease, for example. That would just be a basic thing to do. And that's not exactly how it's done. So in 1954, the, the, this became the gold standard model for virus isolation. And I would say they're using a different definition of isolation here. Enders and Peebles. Enders was a Nobel Prize winner. And his, his prominence, I think, is one of the things that helped make this study very popular. But basically, what they did was they took fluids from a sick person, and these were measles patients in this case, but you could do it for any alleged virus. Take some of those fluids, and they can be even partially filtered fluids, and then you put it into a soup of cellular material. It's called a cell culture. And that soup has antibiotics. It has monkey kidney cells, all sorts of things. And some of those things are toxic. They take these fluids from the sick person, put it into that soup, and they find that some of the cells break down in the soup. And they say, well, there's your evidence that there is a virus. You had fluids from a sick person and now there's cellular breakdown. The virus did that. And, and I, one could look at that and say, well, that is certainly one possibility, but there are many other possibilities. What else was in the fluids from the sick person that could have caused that? What, what about the soup itself? Is there something in there where there would have been breakdown on its own? So. In summary, before I pause, there are two just logical flaws in modern virology that just have shocked me. One is the lack of an independent variable, meaning having an isolated thing that you're putting into the experiment by itself. If you don't have that independent variable, how do you know if there isn't some other factor? And if you don't have an independent variable, then you can't have a proper control by definition because you don't even know what you're controlling against to have a proper control. But in the absence of that, a control might be, let's see what happens to the cell cellular soup, the cell culture, without adding any virus to it. Let's see if something breaks down. Or let's add something that's not an alleged virus and see if that causes breakdown. Now, there are not many studies that have done this, which is mind-blowing, but Dr. Stefan Lanka did this, and he found that the cells did break down in the soup without adding anything. And in another case, he added yeast RNA, so not a virus, and the cells broke down in the soup. Mm -hmm. So this is a matter of logic where the scientific method seems to be breaking down. And most scientists I found and, and doctors are not even aware of this. Yeah, doctors aren't doing these kinds of studies. They start with, I, I believe in their training, they start with this is, this is the Bible. <laughs> this is the medical Bible. And, and no one's really questioning the, right. original, the original studies. Similarly, also in your book, it talks about how like HIV has never been proven to cause AIDS. That, like, there's no study, there's no actual study that has linked HIV to AIDS, but it's an assumption in the medical world. But when Dr. Kerry Mullis, who invented the PCR test, was looking for that study so he could cite it appropriately in something that he was writing, he couldn't find it and no one could find it. So there's some of that that's going on. That's like, that's so interesting. It does kind of remind me of like a belief system, like a religious belief, like there's no actual way to prove that the things happen in the Bible, but we believe it. You know, but science is supposed to be different than that. <laughs> science is supposed to be actually proven, it's, not believe. And it, science is becoming a religion where one hypothesis is taken to be the truth. And I talk about in the chapter one of the book, The History of HIV AIDS, there was an announcement made, I believe it was 1984, HIV is the probable cause of AIDS. And shortly thereafter, the word probable was taken out. <laughs> And it just became the dogma and you're not allowed to ask a scientific question. 
And then there were, like you said, Carrie Mullis, a Nobel laureate. He went to write a grant proposal. And the first sentence was, HIV is the probable cause of AIDS. And he said, I should probably footnote this. And he, he went and asked people and they said, well, go look at the CDC's website. And there was no real evidence for that one thing. And then going even a step further, and I, I didn't realize this until I started researching, because I had heard there was debate around HIV and AIDS. And um, Dr. Peter Duesberg was famous for questioning the narrative, very credible scientist from, from Berkeley. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talked about this in his book, The Real Anthony Fauci, which was a very popular book. So this is a story that's been talked about a lot of, does HIV cause AIDS? Sure, people get sick and have been dying. There's no question about that. But what is the reason for it? Is it this virus, HIV? And there's debate. There's another side of the debate that I didn't know about until recently, um, the Perth Group, P-E-R-T-H, and there's a website, theperthgroup.com, was questioning, is there a virus called HIV in the way that they have been describing it as, as this replicating intracellular parasite? And they wrote a paper called HIV, a virus like no other, which is available for free at theperthgroup.com if your audience is interested. Highly technical stuff. This isn't just conspiracy theory. This is real science that they're asking questions about. So that, that becomes another level of it. Is, is there a virus called HIV in the way that it's been described that is causing the symptoms known as AIDS? Or are there many other factors involved? And this is what people could do. And I, I talk about this in the book. We could look at polio this way, Spanish flu, any alleged infectious disease. Is there another possibility beyond the dogma of it's this pathogenic particle and that's the reason people have symptoms? Yeah, and I do think that sometimes because we're living in a culture that is very rooted in violence and war, it, it has been part of the human condition for a long time. I think sometimes we see things through that lens. And so we're always looking for enemies. We're always looking for what could be attacking us. We're always looking for what needs to be annihilated, what needs to be bombed, what needs to be taken out so that we can survive. And sometimes I wonder if sometimes we get cause and effect mixed up on things like what causes us to be sick because we're looking for that enemy. We're looking for this, this attacker. And so we see it when it may not be an attacker. Now, I want to find this quote. I'm going to have to, it's going to take me a little bit to get it. All right. This is from a guy his last name's Callahan. I think it's I think it's Michael Callahan. He works for DARPA, and this was his description of COVID in Wuhan. The body launches its riskiest line of defense. It sends in its assassins, the killer T cells, which seek out infected cells and trigger their self-destruct buttons. As this war zone inside the lungs heats up, collateral damage becomes inevitable. Half of the immune system ends up fighting for the other half or fighting the other half. Red blood cells burst and disgorge their hemoglobin, an iron-rich molecule that wreaks havoc in the lungs like a grenade mistakenly dropped in the trenches. I just thought that was so interesting. That's the most war description I've ever heard of disease. Mm -hmm. I do think that we see, we've been trained since childhood that there's enemies out there. So when we see something going wrong or something harming us, we assume that's an enemy, and we're going to see an enemy. And, and then that may cause us to get cause and effect backwards. So I know you talk about cause and effect in your book. Why don't you share a little bit about that? Yeah, one of my favorite analogies on this is firefighters at the scene of a fire. Some people could see that and just observe what's happening and say, well, clearly the firefighters caused the fire. That's what happened. Another person might look at it and say, well, 
Fire has a mystical ability and it is able to manifest firefighters out of thin air. So the fire did it. Of course, we have more context and say, no, the firefighters are there to put out the fire. And that level of naivete, unfortunately, might be what's happening with many observations that we see in the world today. And using more technical terminology is that people tend to look at epidemiological observations, meaning patterns of people getting sick, which is a valuable thing to do. But then they draw conclusions based on those observations without having enough evidence to, to come up with the right explanation for it. So if we apply this to germs that we know exist conclusively, like bacteria, for example, there's no doubt that people will have overgrowth of bacteria and that is associated with people getting sick and sometimes dying. The question is, are the bacteria the cause of, of the sickness or are they there as a cleanup crew to try to help put out the fire because there's dead and dying tissue that the person has in his or her body due to some kind of underlying toxic toxicity and the bacteria are actually helpful and in great quantities, they can be toxic, of course, but the bacteria might be there in the first place because of some other reason that's a deeper root cause. So it might be not only is there a war paradigm that's problematic because it always externalizes the enemy rather than making us look at ourselves, but also it might be we might be framing the wrong person. And, and maybe we sh if we want to heal people of infections, one thing to do is to look at the bacteria, but the second thing to do is to figure out what's going on that enabled the infection in the first place or the overgrowth. Why is that there? Yeah, I think another metaphor I think about is the scavenger birds on the side of the road when there's an animal that's hit by a car and they're there cleaning up, literally. But did they cause that rabbit to die? Mm -hmm. You know, that's one thing that we could, we could make an assumption that they, they caused the rabbit to die and now they're eating it or they're just the cleanup. So the idea here is that there may be cleanup, that, that these things that we are seeing as an enemy may be actually the helpers. Or maggots on a carcass. Yeah. Did they kill the animal or are they just eating the dead and dying right. tissue? So it's, a, it's an exercise in critical thinking always to step back and say, I'm observing something. Am I jumping to conclusions about what's causing what without proper evidence? And in many cases, I think modern medicine is doing that. They're jumping to conclusions. Yes. So let's get back to where this, how this aligns with the spiritual path and with our, our spiritual lives, because I, I think that people can go, okay, great. This is all about science. I think a couple of things to look at is one thing that you've pointed out that a lot of science has become like a religion. And I think it's kind of important to, to point out that we have displaced a lot of our beliefs from what was traditionally religious to now something that science, like science has become a religion. And it seems to me that the priests of religions are now like the white coats and the doctors, and we have rituals. <laughs> it's like the whole thing has become like a religion. So I think that's mm -hmm. one thing to just kind of notice that humanity has this predisposition to put their faith in something. And so I think that's one thing that's interesting about, about the spiritual angle on this. And then the other thing is just looking at us as spiritual beings. What is our part in being well or sick? What control do we have? If we believe that we are not just physical bodies, that we are consciousness embodying a body, if we believe I could take a step further for those who believe that humanity has a divine spark in them, that we, there's something 
kind of powerful about us that's beyond the material, then we have a lot more agency and a lot more power over our body, over what we can do to heal ourselves, and over how we can really take control over the healing process itself and not necessarily rely on all of these authorities that we've completely given up our power to. So if I were to reverse what you said and looked at this from the perspective of an evil genius, for example, I would want people to be dependent on the system for their health. I wouldn't want them to take personal responsibility for their own bodily sovereignty and believe that they can heal themselves without a pill that someone recommends on TV and says, you just have to believe this or an injection or something. So I think there, there's two aspects of this. It's the individual sovereignty for us to live our best lives. It's got to come from within and taking responsibility for our health, but also collectively, if we want to have true sovereignty on a population-wide scale, this is another important factor that we can't fully rely or become dependent on the authorities. Yeah, and I think that's going to be a big, big, big thing to overcome because we've really become indoctrinated in that since the very first day we went to school <laughs> and we learned how to be obedient to right. authority. And, and I do think the spiritual path is about reaching that level of personal sovereignty where I am able to listen to the voice within me that guides me about what is the right course of action for me. Even as far as, is this the right thing for me to eat? Is this the right place for me to be? What action should I take next? How should I take care of my body? That, that we have everything within us to ensure that our bodies are healthy and really, really powerful containers for our spirit. I also think that part of the spiritual path is just opening up our minds so that we're fluid and, and being able mm -hmm. to say, even though I've been indoctrinated in or conditioned in this way of thinking, perhaps there's another alternative. Now, maybe there's not, but to have kind of a fluid or flexible mind, I ought to be able to look at what else could be possible. And perhaps this isn't true. And I want to seek truth. So I'll hold this idea in one hand while I go and look at all these other options and see if perhaps there is something else. I really think that is a part of the spiritual path in so many aspects of life. In Don Miguel Ruiz talks about this in The Four Agreements, that we have this domestication of the planet and that we're kind of living in this dream. So to waken out of this dream, part of awakening out of this dream is awakening out of all of these paradigms that we've just accepted from the very beginning. That's right. It's really a matter of intellectual humility, asking ourselves constantly, how is it that I know this thing that I think I know? And to really get clear on why we have the beliefs we have. And you're reminding me of Byron Katie's work, her book, Loving What Is. She has four questions that you're, you ask about any belief. And the first one is, is that belief true? And the second one is, can you absolutely know that that belief is true? And in my mind, the answer is always no that we can't absolutely know any belief is true, except, this is my opinion, that at this moment, it feels like I'm conscious or I'm having a conscious experience right now. That's what it feels like. It's the only thing I know with certainty. Everything else is something that emerges within my mind, whether it's thinking about the future, that's in my consciousness, whether it's the past, it's an inference, 
I can't prove it directly. It's just some, a thought that occurs in my mind in the present moment. So reality becomes much more abstract when we think about it this way, because our, our mind likes to simplify things. It likes to see sequence and it interprets even, even the notion that there is a solid world. That's an inference. It's an interpretation based on what the way it feels to us, the what we see, what we hear. But all of those senses that we have are emergences within our own consciousness. Rupert Spira, a philosopher, has meditations on, on this. I used to do them years ago where he would have you close your eyes and touch something basically. And you'd think, well, that's just something that I feel. And when you really think about it, the sensation that's occurring is within your consciousness. But our mind does this whole mental calculus where it's like, no, that's a solid thing that's out there. And we have sensory tactile thing that makes us feel this thing that's out there. And then we conclude it's out there. Actually, everything is within our own consciousness. And then it's hard to believe anything with certainty after that. Yeah, that, that does kind of blow the mind a little bit. And I love that you bring up Byron Katie because she, she uses the work mostly where people have issues with relationships or they're making assumptions about another person in their life. But it really can be used for any belief that we have, any belief. And, and how are we so sure that the belief that we're standing in is the right belief? How are we so sure? But people just really want to be sure. And they also don't want to admit that maybe they were wrong. <laughs> it's the hardest thing for people to do. Maybe they were wrong. And I don't know what that is. I think it makes it, it makes you feel foolish or it makes you feel like you didn't do, you know, the right, the right research or, or like if you're a politician, you certainly never want to admit you're wrong because you won't get elected, reelected or, or whatever that is. Have you, have you heard the series Bad Doctor? There's a new no. series out and it's only three parts. But it's kind of interesting. There's this surgeon who is extremely charismatic. And he does these surgeries to replace the, the trachea, the windpipe, and he, he replaces them with a plastic windpipe. But none of his patients do well at all. And he was hired by this absolute, I can't remember the name of the hospital, but it's very, very well known, I think, in Sweden. And anyway, somebody, some of his fellow physicians started questioning things because he kind of comes in, did these surgeries. but and was kind of considered a god. But once they dug into it, he had never done any like studies of this kind of transplant on animals before. He's actually experimenting on people. They brought this to the attention of the hospital administration, and the hospital administration obviously hadn't done their due diligence to vet this guy. And instead of coming clean on that, they went after the whistleblowers, you know? <laughs> They made the whistleblowers wrong, and they had them, you know, have to go be deposed before the police and whatnot, because what would happen if they admitted that they made a mistake or that they were wrong? It's just the hardest thing that humanity, I think, has before us to admit, I was wrong. And yet, you question all these paradigms. I question a good number of them. I'm okay saying I was wrong about almost everything. Yeah. It's a practice. It's hard to admit at first and then it becomes easier over yeah. time where now I just, I know I'm wrong about things. I don't know exactly what they are, but I know I'm wrong about a lot and I'm, I'm okay with it. And there's another aspect of the psychology that I'm, I'm starting to appreciate more, which is that 
it's hard for many people to accept that we live in a society where there's so much ignorance. Ignorance, not from a judgmental perspective. I just mean that objectively, right. where we are ignorant of what the truth is. And also that there might be people who do know what the truth is and it's being concealed or it's being people or that we're being manipulated. That is a darker angle that is too much for some people to want to handle because it's easier to look at the world through rose colored glasses that it's, it's okay. Yeah, there are mistakes, but it's all unintentional rather than yes, that's true. And there are also some adversarial forces. So to me, it's a, it's a manifestation of spiritual bypass. Mm. Mm. So it's, it just causes me too much unease to know that I live in a world that may not be as benevolent as I thought, or that these authorities don't have my best interest in mind, because I'm assuming they do. Because if I, if they do, then I can just be, I can just kind of put that on a back burner and focus on what I want to focus on in my life. And I don't have to worry about malevolent forces out there who don't have my best interest in mind. Mm -hmm. I think that's just really, I think you're right. I think that's maybe just too scary. And also, I think there's just a lot of uh, incompetence, too, that we don't want to admit is prevalent in our world, but it is. And I think just living in, in, um, in a sense of things are sure makes us feel good. But the reality is nothing is for sure. Everything's a mystery. And we don't know squat. <laughs> we don't. And it's, it's, it's nice for us to have this historical narrative that we were so primitive in the past and now look at us with our technology. Now we know what those primitive people didn't know. And what you and I are discussing today is, well, we don't really understand exactly why people get sick. That's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's a hard concept to take into my psyche. <laughs> it's interesting that that saying is so prevalent in our world, swallow the pill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, okay. So what else do we want to talk about? We've got another five minutes or so. I want to make sure that we have covered everything that you want to cover. Maybe briefly, we could talk about how contagion is allegedly demonstrated, because this is one of the things that shocked me as I was writing and made me, made me feel really compelled to actually publish the book. Because I'm never sure as I'm writing, I'm like, is this compelling enough? And then I, I come to the conclusion that it is. So it it would seem to me that if we wanted to demonstrate contagion or the transmission of a pathogenic particle from one person to another, that would be extremely easy to do scientifically, where you could take a sick person or animal and put that sick person or animal with a bunch of healthy animals or people, and that th those healthy ones would get sick. Ethics aside for a second, because that's a whole separate issue. But just logically speaking, you should be able to make a whole bunch of healthy organisms sick by introducing a sick one to the population. And that's not how the studies are done. Or you could imagine taking some of this alleged particle that's so pathogenic and putting it in the air with a bunch of healthy organisms, and then they should all get the condition, especially if there's a pandemic and they're shutting down the world because something is so pathogenic. Just put a little of the virus in, in the air and experiment and show that some people get sick in a controlled setting. That's not what they do in these studies. And in fact, in a few of them they have, like with the Spanish flu, they, there were studies where people were coughing in each other's faces and they were not able to transmit anything. No one got sick. And I talk about the details of that study in the book. But most of the studies are horrific studies done on animals. 
where the animals are injected with toxic material that allegedly contains the pathogen. They're injected in their brain, mm. in the trachea, and I go through the details of this in the book. And some of them get sick with symptoms, not always the symptoms that you would expect with that alleged pathogen, but they get sick with something and the doctors say, there you go, we transmitted it. And now we know that there's this contagious thing. So they're committing horrific acts against animals in the process, and they're not even scientifically demonstrating contagion in a normal and natural way. And often they're not even running controls. So if you're going to inject an animal with a, a soup of substances in the brain or in the trachea or somewhere else or in the skin, maybe you should try injecting just saline or mm -hmm. water and see if that does something too. Maybe the act of injecting in those places causes illness. That's not what's happening in these studies, pretty amazingly. So... I want to mention that because most of us, I don't think, are even asking the question, how has contagion been demonstrated scientifically? I would have expected there would be books and books for each infectious disease of just so many studies where clearly it, this, this was contagious. There was just one sick person and then everyone else got sick with the same symptoms just by having close contact. That's not the case. Yeah. there's When you really look, there's not a lot that all of this is standing on. Did you do any research on Typhoid Mary by any chance? Oh. Yeah, I've been looking at Typhoid Mary because Typhoid Mary, I'm trying to remember when she lived, but she, she was a person who was a cook and apparently she never got sick. But she was the one who was oh. pointed at as being the one who got everybody else sick. And I think this is where this asymptomatic carrier thing came from. But there's no proof she was a cook and the people that she worked for got sick. And so she was put away. I mean, not in a jail, but kind of in a lockdown situation for like a couple of years. And then when she was released, she, she wasn't supposed to cook for anybody again, but she did. And I think she cooked for many different kinds of families and settings. But this one setting, everybody got sick and they assumed it was her. And so this whole term, typhoid Mary, I always thought she was this really sick person that got everybody sick, <laughs> but she never, ever got sick. And I, I think if I would, had read that like five years ago, I would have believed it all. But now I'm like, wait a minute, why are they necessarily blaming her? So many other things could have happened to make those people sick. Why are they pointing to her? Why are they ruining, ruining her life? No scientific study is done whatsoever, but they were starting with this idea of contagion that they had already believed, even though there's nothing under that that has been proven. So we live in a really interesting world. And I just think it's time for us to look at the reality of the world we live in, do the Byron Katie question, is it true? And look at what do we really believe in regarding our own selves and consciousness and our agency and our ability to heal and decide, you know, what do I want to do with all of this? Because I, I really do think that even though we're talking a lot about medicine, this is a part of our spiritual path. The last thing I want to say is anybody who watches TV and listens to commercials for medications know that every one of those comes with this massive list of side effects. So we also know that medicines make us sick, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I've heard people say they're not side effects. They're just effects. Yes, they're just effects. They're just effects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The last thing I want to do is I want to come back to, since I'm a unity minister, I do want to come back to 
Myrtle Fillmore and her deep faith in spirit and our ability to heal ourselves. And she wrote this book called Healing Letters, and it's pretty phenomenal. She had, she's a woman of great, great faith. And what I mean by that is faith in her divine nature and her being not just her body and, and being able to, with her own consciousness, heal that body. And so she wrote this book, Healing Letters, and it was published back in 1948. And I just want to read a couple statements from it so you can hear what her faith was like. She says, there's no such thing as disease or in incurable conditions. These activities, weaknesses, or abnormalities to which the medical profession gives name are but the efforts of the God-given inner intelligence to deal with conditions that the individual has produced by its failure to understand the truth and to recognize himself as the perfect child of God and to live by the divine law of life. So from her standpoint, if we fully, fully, fully recognized ourselves as image and likeness of God, the divine, the great mystery, the source, whatever it is you want to call that energy under all that is, that if we really fully aligned with that and understood who we were, that we would have the intelligence to deal with conditions and we would not have illness. She goes on to say, whatever has been impressed upon our souls will work out in our bodies and the affairs because the activities of the mind in its context with divine mind and also with the world of appearances in the mind of others build a soul which in turn forms the body through which it carries out its impressions and the urge from within. So that's kind of what Mark was talking about, how consciousness builds the body. And then she says, we have the power to change our soul's impressions, our subconscious, and so change our bodies and their functioning and also the conditions about us. So, I mean, I find those really kind of inspirational statements about the power of our spirit, the power of our mind, the power of our soul, and, and yet we play so small, so small, and give up so much power to things outside of ourselves. And that's fundamentally, you know, what the spiritual path is about, is to move back to trusting who we truly are. I was going to use the word trust. It really is about trust and surrender in a yeah. way. Not being passive. That's not what I mean. But I mean acknowledging this greater power intelligence that we are a part of and allowing that to work rather than wanting to try to control everything. And I say this as someone who loves to control everything and I know how hard that is to, to try to let go yeah, of it. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I do too. And then the other thing is to not succumb to fear. I think this is so important to not succumb to fear because there are so many messages coming across either in our politics, in our media, in our on our, uh, our news and movies, fear, 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 fear. And where do we put our faith? Do we put our faith in these things, these entities that are causing us to fear? Or do we put our faith in and trust in the divine that has created us? And we can say no to fear. We don't have to succumb to fear and then stand really in our strength and our power and, and our knowledge of, and our intelligence of, of who we truly are. So I think we've kind of come full circle. We started with consciousness and we ended with consciousness. Yep. And it is the fundamental part of health. I really think it yeah. is. Because as we shift our consciousness, not only is there the potential for what we, what we might call miracles, but then also the way we conduct our lives will change and it will be healthier from the physical lens too because our, of a consciousness shift. We'll make decisions in life that are more conducive to health. Yes, yes. And maybe... 
when we start experiencing symptoms, we'll look at either inside and go, what can I do to restore my body? Or go, wow, my body is cleansing itself. Isn't that beautiful? Or we go to a professional and their question is, hey, who are you? What's going on in your life? Tell me all about you. <laughs> What's going on spiritually? What's going on mentally? What's going on in your family? What's going on with your belief systems? And we can start from there as to what a course of action would be. And we could also look at symptoms as our body's way or the universe's way of telling us something we need to look at rather than just wanting to suppress it so we can move on saying, no, there's something for my own evolution that I need to see and my body's showing me something. Yes. So looking at it with more curiosity rather than fear. Yes. Our bodies are so intelligent. And I, I, I know that there's times when I just go, 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 go. And when I get sick, it's often because it is time for me to rest. And it's often because perhaps I haven't been eating as well or sleeping as well and just allow my body to do its perfect healing. And I love that, that, that whole Beauchamp's model where, where the terrain is cleansing itself. I think it's so interesting. I don't know that it's true, but I do really like the model that our body's symptoms, is, it's, our, it's, it's, it's cleansing itself. It's getting rid of all these toxins. And so what can we do? We can just help that process and love our body through that process as we cleanse ourselves. Yeah, what you just described, it's a reversal yes. of the conventional model. And that's, that's why this is such a big deal, because it really is a rewiring of all of our thinking about health and disease. It is. But humanity went from the sun going around the earth to the earth going around the sun. We've done that. We've done reversals before. We can mm -hmm. do reversals again. Well, thank you, Mark, for, for being with me today. And I think we could go another hour. I'll have you on again with your next book, whatever that's going to be and whenever that comes out. <laughs> but I really appreciate you coming and sharing this with us. And I appreciate listeners hoping you all hung in there and kept an open mind and an open heart on that. And just invite you all to question everything that you've learned over the years and just be on this journey of finding what is true out there and finding what is true in here. So I think I'll close the spiritual forum now. And thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.